Greetings to each of you in the name of Jesus this morning. And um, every week we're together, we see this saying behind us, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if we really pay attention to it. But I think it's a good reminder to think about that from time to time. And, um, and I think that the way we do that is by being disciples and by making disciples. That is, and, and gathering like we talked about and so forth. As God grows us, uh, as we allow God to grow us, I believe that we can help others to walk in their walk with the Lord as well. Discipleship really lies at the heart of the gospel, becoming, as we become more and more like Jesus. Jesus called his 12 disciples to follow him during his three years of ministry on this earth. They sacrificed everything to follow him. And when we trust Jesus as our Redeemer, he calls us to become his disciples, to collectively learn, to grow, to allow his Holy Spirit to refine us. And so I believe salvation and discipleship really go hand in hand. They, you can't separate the two. Salvation begins that lifelong journey of following Jesus with fellow disciples. Um, salvation is the start, but discipleship really is the journey of being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Over the past several months, I have read the Gospels and Paul's letters, or I should say I haven't read them all, but as I have been doing so, I've been noticing a theme around discipleship and, and just something that caught my attention different times. I think that we frequently fail to remember or grasp, maybe is a better way of putting it, that our 21st century Western culture is so radically different from first century Middle Eastern culture. Uh, in the context in which the Bible was written, uh, where Jesus walked, where Christianity was birthed, where the New Testament was penned. We're living in a very different time and place from that origin, and, and that does have an impact on how we view scriptures, how we see scripture, how we understand scripture. It doesn't change the fact that I believe that scripture is inspired by the word of God, it, by God, I mean, and is relevant for all believers in all places, at all times, in every culture, throughout all time. I mean, it, it just is. It applies to us even though we're in very different cultures. And so this morning, I'm going to be spending a bit of time thinking about some of those differences, or I should say one of those differences in particular. <clears throat> so we live in a Western culture. A culture that in many ways is obsessed with individual rights, freedom, success, opportunities, prosperity, autonomy, you, the list goes on and on. And while the United States may be the epicenter of this culture, it really originated out of Europe. Social scientists have a label for the pervasive culture, 
cultural orientation that permeates modern America. It's not a new term for us necessarily, but I mean, it's interesting that social scientists describe it this way. This is not religious people, but they call it radical individualism. And we have been socialized or we have been trained or we, we believe, our mindset is such to believe that our dreams, our goals, and personal well-being are front and center in our lives. It is simply the way that we think. It's not that we chose to do that, but it is simply the way that we think. And the immediate needs of the individual are most important and take the priority over anything else. We take care of ourselves first. What's interesting is that much of the rest of the world, apart from Europe and, um, and the United States, especially in the Middle East and Asia, has a very different cultural mindset. That, and that's been the case throughout most of human history. They don't focus on those individual needs, desires, and goals, but their driving motivation and priority is that of the group that they're a part of. They identify with a group rather than focusing on the individual. They're more concerned about the well-being and long-term health of the group than they are about themselves. And those groups are frequently, whether it's families or it could even be employers or a religious group. Um, and this strong group culture is the context in which the New Testament was written in the Middle East at that time. Um, Malini, Malina wrote uh, in Christian Origins and Cultural Anthropology, this is a quote, in a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. Correspondingly, this person perceives other persons primarily in terms of the groups to which they belong. The individual person is embedded in the group and free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only if in accord with the group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member and it may use objects in the environment or other groups of people in society and the members of the group itself to facilitate group-oriented goals and objectives. I know that that's a mouthful, but it really describes a very different way of thinking about life, where life is oriented around a group of people, not an individual. Most of us, or maybe all of us, find it difficult to relate to or even understand such a radically different way of thinking from what we're used to. Now, I can tell you right away, we're not going to change, nor can, should we, this Western way of thinking. It is what it is. And I'm not saying that our way is wrong and the Eastern way is right, but I'm just simply, they're different, and we need to acknowledge that and recognize that. Now, I do believe that, uh, I think most of us would agree, that the radical individualism that 
is in our culture does affect the way that we read Scripture, does affect the way we live our lives, and it affects how we view discipleship and the church, perhaps not always in healthy, in the most healthy ways. So I want, this morning, I want us to consider the reality of what it means that we are God's family. That's what I've entitled this morning's message, We Are God's Family. And so to really understand that, we have to think about and, and look at what the family in Middle Eastern, first century Middle Eastern uh, Palestine might have looked like or probably looked like. In a similar way that radical individualism defines our culture, the group defines these non-Western cultures. And the family is the group that takes highest priority in most uh, Middle Eastern type countries, especially in the first century. Now, this wasn't limited to just my immediate family, but it's an extended family. The larger community is an additional or is an extension of that primary group of the family, but, it, uh, but it, it's not limited to that, and it's how the Jews lived. They lived very much in, in families, but then also in communities. To give a little bit of a perception of how this permeated society, Josephus, in his history, uh, he was a Jewish uh, historian, not a Christian, wrote this in the first century. This is about the time of Christ. At these temple sacrifices, prayers for the welfare of the community must take precedence over those for ourselves. For we are born for fellowship, and he who sets its claims above his private interests is specially acceptable to God. So, a Jewish unbeliever, not a Jewish Christian, but a Jewish person is saying that the welfare of the community, offering prayers for the group is more important than praying for myself and my own interest. And, and it makes us especially acceptable to God. The, this family group dynamic was what they call... Uh, Patri, patrilineal, and it really means centered around the father and the male offspring. The blood of the offspring, blood of the family, was passed through the males, and that's what defined a family group. Now, just to kind of put it in, uh, describe this a little bit, I'm the oldest in my family. I have two younger brothers, and I have a sister. In our case, my dad's family would have included all his children, that's me and my siblings, but only me and my brother's children because we're the male descendants. My sister Beth, when she gets married, their children would be included in as part of her husband's family, not my dad's family. It's just the way that it worked. So the, uh, the male bloodline is what determined family relationships. 
as you might imagine, well, I mean, this culture, there was, there was also arranged marriages. And the loyalty and bond to this family unit defined by bloodlines surpassed that of marriage. In the first century, putting myself there, my highest concern would have been for the good of my siblings and my children and my brother's children, even above that of my wife. Now, that just seems ridiculous, but that is, that is the way the culture thought and operated. And when you realize that, you can see that all through Scripture. You can see it in the Old Testament, the stories about how people related and the values that they had. That is the way they lived. That is the way they thought. That is the way they operated. And it's within this cultural context that Jesus was born, grew up, ministered for three years, and it's the backdrop for the Gospels. It's the backdrop for Paul's epistles and the early church. This family unit was the most important group of people. Everything revolved around the family group and what was best for the family as a whole. Choices and decisions were always in the context of how it impacts the status of the family, both in the near term and in the long term. We Westerners relish in the freedom to make the decisions of what we're going to do with our lives, our vocation, who we're going to do life with, our marriage, what we're going to do with, uh, where we're going to do it, where, our place of residence. But in that first century, strong group, traditional culture, typically none of these decisions would have been made by the individual, but would have been made in the context uh, of a group and what is best for the well-being of the group. Occupations frequently followed that of the father or the family group and was an identifier for the family. I mean, think about it in the New Testament. You read about Simon the Tanner. You read about Peter the fisherman. They were defined somewhat by their occupation, and that carry, often was carried on in the family. I mean, you see it in even the calling of disciples. We'll see a bit of that a bit later as well. Even the, our surnames, if you think about it, come out of this whole thing, our last names. Smith, probably originated from a silversmith or blacksmith or something like that, where Miller, somebody that milled grain. Those names, our names mean something, and that's how it was uh, identified. In addition to this, marriages were arranged for the purpose of carrying on the bloodline of the husband's family and to bring the greatest honor to the family that being married into. It was all about the benefits of that, not about romantic love. The family groups typically lived in close proximity to each other and in adding rooms into households as those families grew. And so these cultural norms permeated first century Palestine even as radical individualism permeates our culture today. It was just their way of living. So while this describes some of the dynamics of the New Testament culture, we don't live in that environment. We can learn from what was then, but that doesn't automatically translate what should be today. 
our cultures are drastically different. But the better we understand those differences, the more we can draw from and think about and look for ways to apply to our culture. During his earthly ministry, Jesus introduced the culture of his day to a brand new family. His family, the family of God. Jesus used the metaphor of the family as the primary picture of what the kingdom of God is like, what the church is like. For myself, the word picture of the church as the body of Christ is probably the one that catches my imagination the most. That's the one that I gravitate toward. But if you look carefully and as you read the Gospels, Jesus most often comes back to the family, the family unit, the group, as a picture of who the disciples are. It's interesting, in the New Testament, there are literally hundreds, probably 500, or more, probably more than 500, references to terms like brother, even though that's not limited to simply a brother, it can be sibling might be a better word, um, sons, inheritance, heir, father, child, all of these words that are a part of that family unit, family group type of thinking. Now, for myself, and I suspect for most of us, we read these words in Scripture not really considering that idea of a family group in the culture. Probably more thinking of these terms as simply figurative language or maybe even Christian terminology. That's just how we think about it, how we see it. But when you look more closely, it becomes obvious that Jesus is rejecting that deep cultural norm and calling his disciples to change their loyalties to an entirely different family from what they're a part of, what they were born into and become a part of the family of God, a group of fellow believers. Jesus was truly being radical. He was disrupting the status quo. He was calling his disciples to leave their natural families for God's family. And along with that, leaving behind the honor, the value, the identity, the everything that came with that family line and surrendering that in order to become a part of his family. So when I realized the significance of what Jesus was doing, I started noticing the family language used in the Gospels, used by Jesus, used by Paul, and it is everywhere. And understanding this strong group mindset begins to open up Scriptures in meaningful ways. I'd like for you to turn to Mark 1. I'm going to look at several verses in Mark. I don't have a text this morning, but um, I want to look at several of these verses and examples of how, what Jesus was really saying, and do we understand that, and what can it mean for us today? <clears throat> Mark 1, verses 14 to 20. Very familiar account that we can just kind of breeze over as we um, read through the Gospels. 
Verse 14, now after John was arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus came to the Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, and they were fish, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and he, the hired servants with the hired servants and followed him. So Mark is introducing the gospel message here. After John the Baptist was arrested, he's saying, you know, the kingdom of God is near, is here. Repent and believe. And so he calls these fishermen, and we understand something of the sacrifice required, leaving a career, leaving an occupation to follow Christ. We know it's a big deal. It's, it's not insignificant. But we see that as the primary sacrificial requirement that is here, or that is walking away from your career. However, when you understand the cultural significance of the family group, Notice the phrase that they left their father, Zebedee. That was betrayal. That was dishonorable. That was disgraceful. It was an embarrassment to the entire family bordering on treason. James and John did the unthinkable. And it seems that Mark is showing from this first chapter that the call of repenting and believing will require the most radical and countercultural decisions that you can imagine. Leaving one's family group was simply not done. One did whatever necessary to preserve that family name, the honor, even if it meant giving up one's life. But not only did the disciples model this sacrifice, um, an ultimate betrayal of family, but we see that it even goes beyond that. But exchanging one's natural family group for another group, I believe, is at the very heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Turn over to chapter 3. And we see Jesus modeling this. <clears throat> Mark 3, verses 31 to 35. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, listen to this, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here, those people around him, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In that social world of Palestine, Jesus was the oldest male in his family. We assume that Joseph had died at this point. He's not mentioned. And so Jesus was responsible to defend the honor of and provide the leadership of his family group. 
And in a single sentence, Jesus dishonored himself and his family by refusing to exercise that role. And it was done publicly in front of a group of people. Rather than claiming, rather he is claiming a new family. One that's not defined by natural bloodlines, but one that is defined by those who are doing the will of God. That was what, he, what defined his surrogate family. Choosing to be a disciple of Christ was the new family. And so this kind of interaction um, might explain why the strong, the strong language that Jesus uses. And there are some difficult passages in the New Testament, what Jesus says. Luke 14 is a very familiar one. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This, those verses don't make sense to us. I mean, they just don't. Commentators, scholars of this culture say the term hate does not mean so much dislike intensely the way that we think about it, but rather it's the idea of being willing to abandon or leave or sever one's relationship from. So it's, it's a willingness of setting one's family aside. It's harsh language, and it seems completely unfair. However, one way of thinking about this is when your blood family joins God's family, the family is simply expanded. It's not like you are literally abandoning them, but it's, it's replacing your blood family with Christ, with the family of God. It does mean there may have to, there are severed relationships for those who reject God's family, <clears throat> a willingness to do that. And then in Mark 10, we have the account of the rich young ruler coming to Jesus and ultimately rejecting the sacrifice required to become a disciple. And then Peter follows that up. There's a little bit of discussion. And Peter began to say to him, verse 28, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. Peter reminds Jesus that the disciples have truly left everything to follow him. And Jesus does not dispute Peter's assertion. He affirms that the sacrifice is made for the sake of the gospel, leaving brothers, sister, mother, father, children, but notice, spouse is not included in that. Brothers, sisters, mother, father, children. In this culture, because the husband and wife had different fathers, they expressed their primary relational allegiance not to a spouse, but to 
members of their family of origin, specifically their siblings. The closest bond, the closest relational bond in the first century was between siblings, not marriage. It can then be understood that the most treacherous act of human disloyalty in this setting was not disloyalty to one's spouse, but a betrayal of one's sibling. And Jesus upended these cultural norms when he called his followers to join this new family, a family of God, superseding even their natural genetics and family loyalties. We have this new surrogate family, which became the church after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. I just want you to think about that a little bit. The primary bond is between siblings in that culture. What is the language used in the New Testament describing believers, brothers and sisters? It's not a coincidence. The concept of the Middle Eastern family should inform our understanding of Christian community since the idea that we're brothers and sisters in Christ is a central tenet of what it means to be church. And there's no other imagery that occurs more often in the New Testament describing the church than that of family, brothers and sisters and such. And it's the essence of first century church life. When we see the words brothers or sisters in the New Testament, our tendency is to read that it is fellow believers. And it's, that's true. And it's understandable that that's how we would tend to read it. We don't generally read it as siblings or in, as in family or our family loyalties pale in comparison to, even though our family loyalties pale in comparison to New Testament times. It's interesting that some translations actually replace some of these words that are brother or uh, brothers and sisters with more generic terms like believers. And while that's not inaccurate, it certainly isn't exact. It diminishes the imagery of this incredibly strong relational loyalty and bond between brothers and sisters now in the context of the church. The strongest ties of loyalty and affection in the New Testament era was that what was shared between brothers and sisters, between siblings. So when Paul wrote his letters, the term brother or sister was something very intentional that was used to communicate behavioral expectations and values that he was um, that was there associated with those sibling relationships of that day. And then given that the strongest relationship is the bond between siblings, it makes sense that discord between siblings is the worst tragedy imaginable. So maybe, maybe for the first time, but maybe we can start seeing and properly appreciating what the early church, what the early Christians meant when they referred to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Jesus radically called his disciples to disavow their primary loyalty to their natural families in order to join this new surrogate family of which he was establishing the family of God. Relationships in this new family were to take precedence over the blood family ties. Now, I'm not saying that that is how we need to live it today. I'm just describing how it was. Um, in the book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, I have this quote. Scripture is clear that when we become Christians, we become permanently and spiritually a part of the church. We become part of the family of God with all the responsibilities and expectations that that word connotates from the non-Western world. We don't choose who else is a Christian with us, but we are committed to them, bound to them by the Spirit. We're not free to disassociate our identities from them, mainly because once and for all we are in Christ, and our own individual identities are no longer of primary importance. And I just thought that's a good reminder that, you know, we don't choose who our brothers and sisters are in the context of the church, but that is what we're called to. Paraphrasing Cyprian of Carthage from 250 AD, um, and this is modified a little bit, but it, basically, he who does not have God's children as his brothers and sisters does not have God for his father. Think about that. He who has... He who does not have God's children as his brothers and sisters does not have God for his father. We Western Christians say that we prioritize our lives probably as follows. Number one is God, then it's family, then it's church, then it's others. It's probably the way that we tend to think. But in the New Testament era, people had to leave one family in order to join another. And if we're truly serious about thinking about how this was in those times, our relationship with our fellow human beings, our priorities should probably look more like, number one is God's family, number two is my family, and number three is others. I believe that that is the order of priorities that we see in Acts, that we see in the early church, that we see in the epistles. Now, earlier I had read you a quote from a, socio, uh, from a um, sociologist, I believe it was. But um, so thinking about this from in this way now, if you change the word group in that quote to church, what does that sound like? And so here is that, is that earlier quote with that word substituted. What this means is, first of all, that the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a church and is responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. Now, I question whether many of us would be ready to sign up for church membership that looked like that. Um, we're Americans, after all. I mean, we, that's just not how we function. But I think it's good for us to think about that that is the type of call that was there in the first century, in the early church. 
Within the last year, I completed preaching through a series of sermons on 1 Corinthians, but I failed to notice the frequent use of family terminology in that letter, as well as others that he wrote. So I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians 1, and I just want to highlight a couple of these. And thinking about this priority of the sibling relationship and, and what that in, in the context of church. But Paul uses this again and again and very intentionally. And in 1 Corinthians 1, I'm just going to jump in in verses 10 and 11. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you may be united in the same mind of the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. All of these, you could replace brothers with brothers and sisters, or you could use siblings to kind of get more of that contemporary sense. But these relationships are important, and here this disunity and quarreling is not what you would expect in a family. And so he's using this terminology to call that to their attention. In verse 26 of chapter 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Then chapter 2, verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And then chapter 3, verse 1, yet, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I challenge you, as you're reading Scripture, as you see this word brothers, substitute it with siblings, just to kind of give it a fresh meaning and think about that loyalty and affection between natural siblings was and bring those characteristics into the family of God. I'd like to just conclude here with a challenge for us. We are God's family, and I don't have answers of what exactly this should look like. But my challenge is that we create awareness about our family, the family of God. I want us to catch a glimpse of what it means to be a member of this surrogate family that Jesus introduced and called us into. And as you read scripture, 